another session of the Business of Craft Beer Blog Talk Radio Show. This is Craig Duncan. I'll be your host today. Before I introduce today's guest and topic of discussion, let me remind you that for the next few months, we are excited to have well-known beer industry experts who can help us make some sense out of a number of seemingly contradictory industry trends. Uh, Bart Watson of course, Chief Economist for the Brewers Association has described the current state of the industry this way, quote, it's harder than ever to tie up craft trends into anything resembling a coherent picture, end quote. So our macro view of beer will hopefully paint a somewhat clearer picture of today's craft beer world. At least that's our goal. We will also uh, schedule uh, calls with people uh, to, to explore the micro view uh, of beer. Uh, those interviews will be with a number of Vermont brewery owners and senior staff, and we hope to gain insight into their world. Does that much talked about slowdown in the industry impact them? And if so, how? Or has the hyper-local focus for beer consumers supported the growth of small local breweries, but at the expense of larger regionals and national breweries? We hope to explore this and other related topics. So now for today's show. In a moment, I'll introduce today's guest, but first a little background on Bump Williams Consulting. Bump uh, Williams and Jeff Nowicki have worked with many beer, wine, and spirit producers, retailers, distributors over the years. They've helped numerous companies understand the marketplace and their consumers, find opportunities, and analyze their business. Experienced in beer, wine, and spirits, they offer a great perspective on how consumer preferences impact each of these sectors. Although we'll focus today mostly on beer, we may touch on how wine and spirits are impacting the beer sector. Bump Williams Consulting supports clients in several areas, managing their business, getting on the shelf, knowing their consumers, expanding new markets, adding new product lines, and mergers and acquisitions. So we're really pleased to have Jeff Jeff Nowicki join us for today's show. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. Where are you calling in from? San Antonio, and I'm sitting on my deck enjoying uh, a little bit of uh, what little sun has broken through from the last three weeks. (laughs) Uh, Well, we have no sun here in Vermont right at the moment. (laughs) Well, uh, Jeff, I'm not sure anybody has has ever asked you this before, but between Bump and you, how many total years combined have both of you worked in the alcohol beverage industry? Uh, I think at last count, Greg, we were were hedging up on about 35, 36 years. Okay. Each, each. So combined, that's about 72 to 74 years of total experience. There we go. Okay. Uh, when did you join Bump, and uh, what's your background in the beer industry? Well, uh, I joined Bump ten years ago. It was uh, August, um, and and I had come from uh, just putting a, together a company called IBU. Um, I was one of the leadership team when Magic Hat bought Pyramid, and I had spent uh, a couple of years trying to pull those two cultures together. Uh, it was kind of the young and the older in the West and the younger in the East. And uh, so 
Uh, prior to that, um, I was with Gambrinus for 10 years, and we uh, hooked up a couple of little brands, um, Corona being one of them, for the <laughs> eastern United States, and Shinerbach here in the state of Texas. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I've had uh, a variety of different positions in different companies. I spent 10 years with Coors um, doing category management, national accounts. Uh, I was ahead of um, corporate key accounts for off-premise, uh, grocery and club. I only in a couple of years, and I ran a distributorship, three-tier distributorship, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, three-category liquor, beer, and spirits distributorship in Alaska for 10 years. Uh-huh. Well, so alcoholic beverages has been part of your professional life for quite quite some number of years. So let's get into um, Bump Williams Consulting a bit more. Tell us more about what you do, who are your typical clients, size, alcohol sectors, and what type of work do you do for those clients? Well, we, uh, we don't have a size, um, cookie-cutter size, per se. Uh, we have helped clients uh, as large as the Miller Coors Company um, when it was S.A.B. Miller. Um, Heineken uh, with the Dos Equis, uh line for a period of time um, and we go right down to the very smallest um, local uh, small brewers that are doing business just in a uh, in a regional basis or even in a, a local community basis um, and all of those in between I think if you uh, read down the list of who's who in the craft category we have had some um, input to some of their work um, for a great number of them. So we've had hundreds of clients over the uh, 11 years. And we just, by the way, had our uh, anniversary uh, in October. Um, so we've had a number of clients. We've also uh, supported some of the spirits and smaller upstart spirit companies and, uh, and do a bit of wine uh, here and there. A lot more speaking engagements uh, in that area. Our primary focus is using analytics to help in a variety of ways. Um, we are supported by a complete set of IRI data across all channels um, and all releasable data that's available out there. Uh, and we use it to analyze markets for uh, a respective client as to forecasting products, new intros, um, and we we have done we we consult to Wall Street, um, Greg. We we've done uh, futuristic forecasting for brewers who are doing mergers or acquisitions. We've worked with uh, uh, a variety of different groups that are external to the industry that have come in, um, that uh -huh. have acquired or or become partners in in some of the brewery operations that you read about over the years. Uh, some of the large ones and uh, uh, quite a few of the smaller ones. So uh, we really have an open book of all the experience the two of us combined. There's probably not other than maybe a bit of operational side. Um, neither one of us are brewers or distillers. Um, that We leave that up to those guys. They're the scientists of the business. But uh, once they put it on the uh, – once they get it off the production line, um, we pretty much have the full menu of – where to go, how to get there, 
and what to do with it once you've got it there. So let's let's talk in a little more depth about some of those uh, categories that you just mentioned. Uh, for example, knowing your customer or consumer. Um, when an existing brewery or one in planning comes to you, take us through the process of how you get to know their customers uh, or they get to know their own customers, anticipate who their customers will be if they're still in planning. Uh, while we can all appreciate the logic in knowing your consumer, explain how this helps a brewery. Well, I'll, uh, I'll take it as an upstart. So if you're a young brewer and you're just getting into the business and you're trying to determine whether you're going to um, make your operation uh, totally on-premise tap room uh, type scenario or you want to go out to the market and do broad-based distribution, um, there's two basic avenues. And, you know, initially it's understanding what you want to be. Uh, a lot of folks want to be brewers, but there are so many variables when it comes to being a brewer. Um, you know, do you want to be a great restaurateur and a brewer? Uh, do you want to be, and of course I'm going to assume that they all want to be great brewers. Um, do you want to be a mass marketer? Um, so we have conversations with our clients and sit down and say, what do you want to be? Uh, what are your vision? What's your vision for the future of your business? Um, and once we identify that, then we start to map out a plan. Um, if they want to do the traditional kind of tap room business where they're a brew pub, um, then we look at location and, and where they plan on putting their location or where they have their location and look at the demographics that they will attract in that area. Uh, and when I say demographics, we're looking at what are the potential clientele for them? Are they millennials? Uh, Gen X is Gen Y's, um, you know, where exactly are they going to get their customer base? Um, mm -hmm. So trying to define that and, and really getting an idea of what the potential is for their businesses is a stage that um, a lot of them have some experience in, but um, really doing um, the background work and saying, okay, is this a feasible project? Are you going to attract? Uh, the kind the clientele that you're looking for, then who are you? Identify who you are. Uh, you know, you're a brewer, but are you a brewer of fine IPAs? Do you do great sours? Um, is barrel aging what you want to do? Um, so pinpoint that avenue that you want to go down. There's so many opportunities there, and certainly you can spin off a number of different styles, but you need to plant, so so to speak, a flagship of who you really are. And mm -hmm. identify that and um, in, and then moving forward, you know, what are the areas that are going to impact your business? Obviously, if you're going to go into the distribution network, uh, we're talking about a three-tier system. You need a distributor appointed. It's not an easy task in today's world, certainly. Um, we often recommend that um, you become a player in your own market. Um, the farther you get away from the circle of your influence, uh, where people know you, um, the less potential you have uh, to generate volume and velocity. People just don't know you as well. So a lot of the really successful brewers today have started with uh, the brew pub scenario and eventually gone to self-distributing. Uh, out of those brew pubs were legal. 
Um, that turns into an interest in the marketplace to go to general distributing um, and put your put your product out with a distributor network, which entails a whole bunch of different things relative to staffing, uh, support, um, and so many other variables. But there there is a, a pretty set pattern of the steps that you take to identify uh, what what your needs are going to be. Mm-hmm. We've you know obviously seen uh, probably experienced ourselves um, the growth of tap rooms uh, and and why that is important to any brewery these days selling directly to their their consumer. Um, one of the things that that I've observed, uh, I'd like your your take on this, is that. A lot of people get into the the industry because they started brewing beer and that's their passion. And a few years down the road, they end up being a HR person managing people. Um, the taproom staff grows. It probably involves a, a restaurant or food of some sort uh, applicable. Um, so they may have 30, 40, 50 people that they're actually managing. Um, what's your experience in people sort of, you know, managing that whole side of the business? Well, that's a great question, Greg, and it's often one of the most difficult tasks you have. Um, Keeping people that are uh, great people is often difficult. Once you train them, they want to leave or they get bigger opportunities or a better opportunity. But, um, you know, initially I think that you have to invest not only in passionate people, Um, There are a lot of folks that have come in in the last 20 years, and I've seen just a a wave of of people that are coming from such a variety of backgrounds that are passionate about being in the industry. And you really don't, I guess, know what you're getting into until you experience it. I would say the ideal trained person starts with a distributor, um, maybe even starts at retail to a distributor, and then from a distributor up to uh, working for a supplier a brewer and that way they understand the three tier system and they, they understand the agendas for each because they each have their own. Um, Keeping your people excited about what they're doing, keeping uh, developing a great training program, which I think is probably the most underdeveloped part of our industry today. It's getting much better, but um, I will tell you that the pool of, of, depth of qualified experienced people um, is pretty low. So, you know, on the upside, it's a great opportunity for, for newbies to come in and that are excited about the industry and, and get their feet wet and really decide uh, if they want to be part of it. Um, But I think it's inevitable that if you're going to be successful, your people have to be really qualified. They really Mm -hmm. need training. They really need to understand the dynamics of the consumer um, the market, um, and of course have tremendous product knowledge. So keeping those folks on board is, is not an easy task because once you get those superstars, somebody else is looking for them and, uh, they will shuffle the deck for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in a, in a conversation with a a guy who opened a brewery in, in Beverly, Massachusetts, Gentilly Brewery, Paul, um, mentioned that, the people behind the bar represent the band and there's, are as important as the beer that he makes. Um, he may have been a little modest. He makes great beer, 
but the point was well taken, which is that every time you go in there, the people behind are uh, appear to be your friends. Um, they know you, they talk with you, they know about the product, um, and they engage with people. And, and uh, I think he, he's, you know, initially he thought he would be spending more time in the brewery, but uh, due to uh, family uh, responsibilities, he had to hire people to do that work. Well, those folks are each ambassadors to that that brewery, that brand, and and yeah. you know they are the person that is the spokesman that that customer sees. So they may not have another impression. That may be their first and only impression. If it's a great yeah. one, certainly they'll come back. Yeah. But uh, they're they're truly the spokespeople for the brewer. Yeah. Another area uh, where you guys help uh, clients is getting on the shelf. Uh, can you give us an example of how bump? Williams Consulting helps in the all-important category of gaining visibility with consumers? You know, it's not as uh, much of the visibility with consumers. That's really the marketing function. Um, you know, the, the, the rules of, of engagement in the industry are the distributor gets it to the shelf. Marketing is supposed to pull that off. Um, uh-huh. It's their job. It's, it's marketing uh, of your brand, of your product, and developing, um, you know, a, a need for your product, but getting on the shelf in today's climate is uh, is a very difficult task. I mean, when you think mm-hmm. about 14,000 plus SKUs out there, and an average grocery sco- store will carry somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 to 850, depending on their their size. Um, mm-hmm. You know, liquor store is a little more expansive, but when you're getting into the mainstream of getting on shelf, um, it it really takes uh, a couple of, of key levers. Um, first, you have to have a product that people know. Um, you have to be able to go in and show the retailer that, you know, you're successful with your product. Uh, mm-hmm. Your brand's doing well. And you have to use analytics. Um, and when I say analytics, I mean market data where you're talking about your velocity, um, which is the amount of beer you're selling per store or per location. Um why is your product different than any others? Um, you know, we know the effects of IPAs. They've gotten to the point where we now have them in, in three or four separate categories so we can even understand what those are. Mm-hmm. Um, but why are you, what, what would differentiate you from anyone else? Are you a local favorite? Do you have brand equity as far as origin? Um, and I'd use a Kona, for instance, would be something that somebody experiences the Hawaiian effect when they drink a Kona. Mm-hmm. Um, product. So, getting to the shelf is is uh, a, a pretty difficult task, but it can be made easier if you understand how to present and and build a, a persuasive uh, presentation that a, you take into a buyer and say, "These are the reasons that I think I can make you money." That's what it's all about for them. So, mm-hmm. uh, when you go in, they really um, are far more attuned to. Uh, the craft world today, believe me, 10 years ago, a lot of buyers, you were educating them when you were in there talking to them. In today's world, they understand it very well. They may not know you. So you need to make a, you need to, you need to provide them a compelling reason of why your brand deserves to be there and support that with, with, with the analytics that you can get from the marketplace. And the other the other point you made um, earlier at the beginning of this uh, question um, had to do with you know the marketing side and 
and uh, causing people to react positively to what they're seeing. Um, uh, with a sea of, of products these days, um, uh, just the packaging, the design, the logos, um, uh, how does that come into play? I, I, I'm also thinking about a recent uh, Nielsen study that they did with the Brewers Association where they they uh, stated that the people who buy beer are necessarily people who are consuming it. So it may be a friend or a spouse who's buying for you, and they often make decisions when in front of the cooler as opposed to you know, coming into the store with a specific product in mind. Uh, what, what's your take on all of that? Well, impulse purchasing is, you know, anywhere upwards of 60%. Um, depends on the channel that they're buying in. Um, folks that are going into a convenience store obviously have a much smaller brand set to choose from. Most of them know what they're going to purchase when they walk in the door, where a liquor store or a grocery store, and, and to a certain extent even a club store, um, they're going to be influenced by what they see at shelf. Um, you know, there's positioning that you, you try to accomplish when you're at shelf that gives you an advantage. Um, certainly all those aspects that you mentioned, Greg, relative to, you know, your, your labels, um, your product orientations, uh, whether it's a, you know, a, a, a hot style or, or it's a something innovative that no one's experienced before, um, those are the things, the elements that obviously are going to be compelling to a consumer. Um, in today's world, uh, you know, our generation, the younger generations that are out there, and I'm going to say legal drinking age to 35 to 40, they're seeking an adventure. You know, they go in and they shop um, and they look at labels and they read what's on the shelf. Um, so they're being influenced when they walk in the door by what they see in the store. Most of them don't get out of their car and already know uh, walking across that parking lot that they're going in there for a specific brand. And, and it varies again, but six, about 60% of the, uh, of the purchasing decisions are made at shelf. So, um, you know, it's very important that you have all the qualities of marketing that influence that consumer. And that is quality of label and, you know, maybe the story, the backstory is written on a can or a bottle or, or whatever packaging you're using. Um, that kind of influenced, you know, their decision process and go, wow, you know, it's, it's farm to market. I really love fresh. Um, that may be a reason why they pick you up and give you a try. Uh-huh. <laughs> you um, also mentioned managing your business, um, and I, I think you alluded to it earlier when you talked about uh, Magic Hat and Pyramid and, and that, um, that merger of cultures, um, but that's probably only one of many aspects of managing the business. What are some of the common issues that clients come to you to help solve? Well, I think um, business planning is going on right now, and it's like the buzzword um, and it's got a variety of different influences relative to your size within a distributorship but you know gaining share of mind uh, in a distributor network that is you know maybe carrying 750 to 1500 products um, it's a very difficult task and there's a reason that um, we preach to our clients that you have to inspect what you expect you have to put people out in the marketplace, your ambassadors out there, to assist in the sale of your product. You can't expect a distributor to sell for you anymore in today's world. 
Um, and it's getting tougher um, on suppliers to to really gain that share of space and, sh- and share of mind within the uh, distributorships. But I think business planning is a prime is is probably the most influential function during the year for a brewer with a distributor. Um, and then making sure that their people are calling on marketplace. Um, you know, they do a lot of selling out there and the distributor can show up and they can deliver. Uh, and they do that extremely well, better than any in the industry, in, in any of the, the CPG industry. But they can't do it all. And you mm-hmm. can't expect them to do it all. So you have to be the momentum behind your brand all the way to the street level. Earlier you mentioned uh, velocity and um, just getting product into market is, I guess, one thing, but um, wholesalers are in the business of moving as much product as they can, and that gets to the question of velocity. So what you seem to be suggesting is it's a team effort in order to move as much product as possible on any shelf where a product might, might be placed. Well, there's there's a variety of methods that we use to move velocity. Obviously, folks walk into a beer aisle and they see displays. Um, I'm I'm not a big proponent in price reduction, although it does play uh, a major part in in the industry. Uh-huh. Um, but when you're when you're on display, um, you're gaining additional impulse. Obviously. Um, Normally, a display will will support any out of stock. So, if you're limited on shelf with the number of pack out size that you have, uh, let's say they can only put a case of your product up there, and it's a Friday night, and you know it's the 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 perfect storm uh, to have people come in and pull four six packs off the shelf, and you're out of stock. Um, so, you know, display plays a big part. I think uh, I preach people reach two people that they really should work diligently uh, with their retailer to get themselves displayed as often as they possibly can. Um, Those impressions are like billboards. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the velocity issue and the velocity of, of a brand will really have an impact on that retailer's decisions on how much space they give you on shelf. Uh, If you're moving a six pack a week, you can't expect to have five, full facings on a shelf, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be stuck in, in, in that kind of uh, sea of, of a variety of brands in hopes that somebody's heard about you or they recognize you or whatever. And hopefully you're positioned at eye level. Um, and if you're in a cooler door, you're not on the hinge, you're on the handle. Um, I mean, there are so many intricacies, Greg, when it comes to what helps mm-hmm. you move one more six pack. Yeah, we have a um, uh, class specifically in beer sales in our program here at the university. And a guy who has been in beer sales for 35 years, um, so he uh, he certainly uh, conveys the uh, various tricks of the trade um, and the necessities of uh, gaining visibility in a, in a in a store in a package store. Um, let's talk for a second about your your sort of going up to to uh, higher view of the industry. Um, let's talk about craft segment, its long-term health. Uh, currently we're uh, probably past the 7,000 
mark for uh, craft breweries with another 2,000 in some stage of planning. Um, if I understand Bart Watson's analysis correctly, and he's written a, about this, um, he estimates that a community of 10,000 people uh, should be able to sustain a well-run craft brewery. Um, using this ratio, I've done some calculations and and um, you know, a community of, of 100,000, obviously, uh, people um, could support more or less 10 breweries and so forth. Um, setting aside the, the quality of a, a, a brewery for a moment, this means we might see somewhere between 12,000. We're uh, at 7,000 or, uh, or so now. And at, that's at the low end, if our calculations are right. And we could see as many as 23,000 on the high end over time. Um, what do you think of this ratio, first of all, and potential for future growth? And has your team at Bump Williams Consulting uh, generated any other sort of way of, of analyzing the market to come up with future growth projections? Well, we obviously have taken um, the historical data, and we run it through various modeling systems to forecast the industry. Um, you know, we see off-premise gains of about two, two and a half percent um, in our recent forecast that we've just done. Um, I think we're running a little bit behind that uh, this year so far from what we've seen from the numbers. But then again, we're heading into uh, a really good seasonal period for craft um, with with a lot of the seasonal offerings. Um, and then going into yeah. the holidays where people tend to trade up. Um, yeah. As far as number of breweries, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, Bart's an economist and, and he can certainly uh, justify that number. I think if you're talking about 10,000 to support a tap room uh, where you're selling across the, the bar, uh, Bump has coined a phrase called tank to bank, basically taking it out of the bright tank and putting it in the bank because you're selling it right there on location. Um <laughs> You know, depends on what your model is. If 1,500 barrels are, are, are going to make you a nice living and that's where you want to be, then 10,000 may be a number that supports that. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not real sure that, that uh, when you start to go off-premise uh, and you start into the distribution ranks that that number of people are ever going to satisfy your, um, your desire. Uh, you know, the last, uh, and we've done several studies with, with brewers that we work you know, work with, and it's about a 10,000 barrel break-even point when you've got a full distribution brewery going out there, and, and I'm going to use that term loosely. Uh, it varies from depending on your price point and cost of goods and all the things that go into it, but um, until you reach 10,000 barrels, you're you're pretty much breaking even. In some cases, you're not even breaking even on the lower end, uh -huh. um, depending on how much you have invested. So, I, I, I mean, the number keeps climbing and I keep scratching my head. Um, I, I think the world of e-commerce is going to benefit um, those brewers that are coming online. I believe when um, the laws continue to loosen relative to their abilities to ship uh, interstate, um, that opens up a whole new avenue with, uh, you know, the capabilities of going to somebody who's an e-commerce distributor versus a traditional um, distributor in a, in a footprinted territory. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know what a real solid number is going to be. I, I, I was amazed when they hit 2,000. 
<laughs> so, you know, each year those numbers climb, I scratch my head and say, wow, how big can it really get? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I know, you know, in, one in, thing I do. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. One thing I do know is that, you know, all, all packaged goods are cycles. They all have life cycles. Uh, we saw a downturn for craft um, in the 80s, late in the mid to late 80s, uh, and then it research and then a resurgence in the late 90s. Um, we saw the same thing happen with imports. So we've seen life cycles here, and um, I believe we are we are somewhat in one of those transitional life cycles where we've got such a uh, a large number of offerings out there now that uh, you know there aren't any. Well, there are some really shining stars. They just don't stay on the planet long. Um, so it's very transitional. And I've heard I've heard some analysis of the of the late '80s um, and the the shakeout, as some refer to it, um, as being a combination of too many uh, breweries that were making bad products. Uh, the industry was still relatively new. And then um, a lack of distribution. Um, there just weren't enough distributors that understood the craft sector to do an, uh, an adequate job of getting product to market and representing it well. Um, what, what's your take on, I mean, obviously we're, we're in a different period now. We have lots of distribution. In fact, we might have far too much product on the shelves, which may confuse people, some would argue. Um, and we have a lot of great product, um, but uh, those factors that drove the decline in the eighties um, don't seem to be playing today or am I wrong about that? No, I totally agree, Greg. And, and those are great points. Uh, you know, it was embryotic in the, in the eighties. Uh, you can almost think back and, and come up with 10 companies that dominated it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously uh, Jim Cook and his, his team, uh, started it out. Uh, I was with Coors when we launched Blue Moon, and I can tell you it was like pushing an olive uphill with your nose. Um, <laughs> it, it and and we were a we were a machine. I mean that's what we did. Um, but uh, I think we're in a totally different uh, totally different climate today. Uh, the consumers are much more knowledgeable, much more access to information um, on social media. Um, you you probably hit on one thing. We've probably done a we're, we're probably at a saturation point um, where brands don't live on the shelf very long, and so you have to be very uh, very nimble with your offerings uh, to be able to change and and move into something quicker. Um, I, I don't think in my life history of my, in in my career that we ever would go in my past history and say, please take this off the shelf and put this on the shelf. That was never, uh, a, a, never a presentation that we gave to a retailer. Um, today you almost want to do that transition before you uh-huh. become outdated and get taken away completely. Um, you're better off going in and saying, can I change out? Can I give you a, yeah, a, yeah. a, a new, a new set of underwear here? Because I think they're, uh, the the other ones are are getting a bit tattered. So um, I wanted uh, it, it, I wanted it's a different explore this, Yeah, I wanted to explore this. Um, so, uh, sort of contrasting models here. I've seen some breweries that have, you know, a few flagships, but they maybe have a product line of four or five 
products, and that's really the core of their business. And then other ones that are necessarily any bigger in production size um, might have a dozen or 15 products. And, you know, they're not, they're not all offered year round. Um, but do you see one model working better? Is, is it more successful today than the other? Um, well, I think you can only manage so much, certainly. Um, and the market can only absorb so much. I think when you're doing uh, a, a multiple of offerings out of out of a tap room, um, that's a whole different set of of, uh, of rules. And I think mm-hmm. you know, bringing out new brands and bringing out new styles and things in that um, environment is a fantastic way to keep your customers engaged. They always know they're not going to get. Uh, the same old stuff, they're going to see something new. And, and so I think that's been a tremendous success uh, at the taproom level. Um, but I think when you go to shelf, you, you can't afford to just walk away from brands so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's way too much money invested in, in the packaging and, and, uh, and development of the graphics and, and the marketing of it. So you have to, you have to really continue to press that. Um, until you reach that point where there's a, a lack of return, um, you know, and and you, Greg, know as well as I do, we've seen a lot of breweries, and I won't mention any, that just got way too big too quickly, and they couldn't sustain it. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some pretty big names that have been in the uh, the news recently of people who tried to go to 40, 30, 40 states and manage that and yeah. weren't able to sustain it. So I, I will tell you that I believe you build your brand small and you build it very deep. Um, you don't want to be an inch deep and a mile wide. You want to be a mile high and an, on an inch. I mean, it's just basically that. And you can move out from that parameter because the farther you get away, as I said before, from your central brewing location, um, your velocity falls off dramatically. Let me um, let me take a moment for our sponsor, and then Jeff, I'm going to come back with the uh, twenty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, <laughs> All right. The, the Business to Craft Beer program at the University of Vermont is our sponsor, and uh, if you've dreamed of one day opening your own brewery, or perhaps you want to get out of your cubicle and apply your skills in craft beer in an industry you have great passion for, uh, the Business to Craft Beer program may be your ticket. All the instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada. Each class has eight to ten industry leaders that guide your learning through the business side of the craft industry. To learn details, visit our site, uh, Facebook, UVM Business of Craft Beer, or give us a call at 800-639-3210. Classes begin year-round, so anytime you can essentially begin your studies. So, Jeff, uh, here is our $24,000 question for the day. (laughs) How do you see cannabis impacting the alcoholic industry beverage uh, industry, if at all? That is is definitely a $24,000, maybe a $24 billion question if you start talking (laughs) to Constellation and Diageo and Coke. But um, we are going to see an impact. Uh, There's no doubt. Um, you know, in, in, in the lifestyle of, of cannabis and alcoholic beverages, they've interacted illegally for years. Um, 
so you know there there's that given that you know people were already doing it um and we're already using it but i think what we're going to see is a huge transition in the complements of each of those products uh i do believe that you know uh you have brewers like keith via that have left uh coors that was the originator of blue moon who is now developing THB, THC and CBD-based products. Um, and and um, rumor has it I haven't seen anything or tasted anything, but, you know, they're going to be um, malt-based without the alcohol, but with the THC in them. Um, I, I think there's just a plethora of opportunity where those two will co-mingle um, in what we know today as beer space. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if one's going to detract from the other, if one obviously will take off and become um, the, so to speak, cannibalization of of beer by that. We haven't seen it so far. There's studies that are out there that say, yes, it does, and no, it doesn't. And um, I think five years under our belt in California will give us a better idea of Mm -hmm. what kind of impact it's going to have on the overall industry. But, um, you know, I, I truly believe that we're going to see a tremendous amount of interaction between the two um, in the future of, 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 of the beverage industry. Yeah, um, you know, we, we're looking at numbers uh, closely in those states where um, cannabis has been legalized for recreational use and, uh, you know, tracking the, 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 the sale production and sale numbers um, to see if we can make any sense out of it. And I think you're right. We're a little too early. Um, we just need a little more, a longer baseline here to understand, um, you know, Massachusetts and Vermont just legalized it. So we've got, you know, at least a year to go before we understand its impact in those two States. Um, but uh, Jeff, this has been fun and uh, hopefully uh, listeners gain some valuable insights into issues that drive success in today's beer industry. Thanks for joining us. Well, I appreciate it, Greg. And if there's anything I can leave your, your uh, students with, and that is I've been in the business a long time. It's the greatest business to be in that I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. um, Happen to agree with you (laughs) next week. um, We're going to be talking with Melissa and Brett Hamilton, owners of Stone Corral Brewery located in Richmond, Vermont. Uh, We'll take a look at their history, what distinguishes them from other breweries, and what keeps them up at night. Uh, We hope you'll join us with your questions, and until our next show, make sure you support your local breweries. And thanks again, Jeff. We much uh, appreciate your time. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Greg. Okay, take care.